podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Today, I'm excited to be joined by a man who has certainly left his mark on Australian opera, and he's not done yet. Lyndon Terracini has been Artistic Director of Opera Australia since 2009. However, his association with opera goes back decades, having first appeared with the company as a baritone in 1975. His operatic career took him to his ancestral home of Italy, but making frequent visits back to Australia to perform here too. Lovers of opera will doubtless be aware that he's about to embark on his final year as Opera Australia's Artistic Director. The 2023 season has just launched, so I'm absolutely delighted Lyndon Terracini has found time to come and speak with me today. Lyndon Terracini, a warm welcome back to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Thank you, Simon. It's always lovely to be here. Well, we have to start in the present, or should I say the near future in 2023. Um, what are you most excited about presenting next year? Oh, look, I'm excited about a number of things. Uh, you know, Obviously, I'm excited about the Ring Cycle in Brisbane, but also the, the artists uh, that are performing for Opera Australia next year. Uh, Damiano Micheletto's brand new production of uh, The Tales of Hoffman um, I'm very thrilled about because uh, Damiano is one of the great directors of opera in the world now very much in demand but I'm also extremely happy about that particular production because Opera Australia is building it we're doing the first performances of it here in Sydney and then it goes to La Fenice in Venice and then to the Royal Opera at Covent Garden, and then after that to Lyon in France. So we've had a number of com- uh, co-productions over the years, and we continue to have them, and we've got some in this, uh, some others in this coming season. But uh, this is the first one that we've actually built, created, and sent out to the rest of the world. So I'm, I'm very pleased about that. Usually it starts there and comes here. Is that exactly, yes. Yeah. And it's been a long process, uh, convincing, you know, the Met and Covent Garden and uh, La Scala and Berlin and Munich that, um, you know, we can uh, build these things and send them uh, anywhere else in the world rather than us taking a show that's uh, always a co-production and there's a lot of dialogue about it. But nevertheless, they've always initiated uh, or, or been or had their first performances uh, in one of those big houses. Mm. So they, they were a bit reluctant? Oh, right at the beginning, uh, when I started in 2010, it was very difficult, yeah. Mm. It was very difficult to get uh, the major singers, conductors, directors and so on to come here. You know, it's a long trip and uh, they needed to feel that it was really worth their coming. As listeners will know, Jonas Kaufman is a regular visitor now. He comes at least every two years and Jonas will be coming back again next year. But it's because we have a terrific relationship and we've, uh, we've built that relationship over a number of years. So he has confidence in knowing that um, it's not only Jonas that'll be fantastic, but everyone and everything around him will be fantastic. Yes. Is there a production for next year that you think might be a bit of a sleeper hit for me? I think it was La Juive might have mm. fit that category in the year we just had. That's true. I think Adriana Lacouvre, yeah. particularly with Hermanella uh, Yaho and uh, Michael Fabiano and uh, Renato Palumbo conducting, Um, You know, Hermanella is a wonderful, wonderful singer and I'm sure listeners will remember hearing her a few seasons ago in uh, La Traviata and Michael Fabiano too is a tremendously passionate tenor and to have them in in this sort of piece that is a very passionate opera anyway Mm. and, you know, they're they're roles that suit them tremendously well particularly at the, the, the stage of development they're at at the moment and with someone like Palumbo who is one of the great conductors in the world 
I think, um, yeah, I think you're right. That would uh, We did have a sleeper with La Juive, and I think uh, Adriana Lecouvre will be a similar sort of thing. I assume it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle to put a season together. Can you give any insights into you know, some of the practical things you need to consider? Oh, look, it's, look, everything in this business is really about balance, and uh, it's trying to find the right balance in a season. You know, you, you need to have a piece like Adriana Lecouvre uh, for subscribers who um, have probably seen La Traviata and La Boheme and various other operas a number of times, but for something like Adriana, they may, ne- may have never seen it. Or if they have, then uh, perhaps they only saw it with Joan Sutherland many, many years ago. But it has some wonderful music in it, and I think uh, that sort of piece provides a-, a balance that you need to have in a season when you're doing La Boheme, as we are, next year, uh, Don Giovanni, um, Rigoletto, pieces like that. Mm. You've got to have something that um, just balances the scales a bit. In the same way that um, you can't have everything that's really uh, dark and passionate and so on, you need a bit of lightness. You need to have something that balances that. And also in terms of uh, the singers that you have, the conductors that you have and the directors that you have, you know, they're, they're all very different in their own way. Uh, some of them um, will do things... Well, for example, Ermanella will sing uh, Adriana completely differently to the way Joan Sutherland did. Mm. And uh, it's it's really enjoying that sort of difference and be, being surprised by it and realising that um, she is an exceptional artist, uh, one of the greatest artists of our time. And the, the choices she makes when she's singing uh, are often very surprising. But because she has this extraordinary technique, she can do them. Um, admittedly, you know, she takes a lot of risks and uh, those risks 99% of the time come off. And so you're left, you know, spellbound and you mm. can barely take the next breath because you, you're so excited by it. So those sorts of things provide a balance to something like Bohem. And we are doing the Gale Edwards production one last time. <laughs> I did say last year that that would be the last time, but this certainly <laughs> is. Um, uh, to Nelly Melba. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. But um, it's, uh, look, it's a wonderful production and we do have some fantastic singers in it, many of them mm. making their debuts in those roles. Uh, so it'll be tremendously exciting. But, um, you know, it's a young cast and, again, that's a balance to what we're doing in, in other operas throughout the season where we have, you know, more experienced people. Um, and so, as I said, the whole thing is really trying to find the right balance uh, for the audience so that uh, every page they turn in the brochure, they think, oh, wow, that looks interesting. Yeah, well, yeah I'll buy that. Yeah, give that a go, yeah. And, uh, and, and also for the singers, the conductors and directors, yeah. they all want to do something that's, that's interesting. With Damiano Micheletto, for example, he was very excited when we first started talking about the tales of Hoffman. Listeners will remember the, the wonderful production he did of um, Cavalleria Rusticana and Pagliacci, and also Viaggio Reims. But this, uh, you know, this Tales of Hoffman will certainly have his um, his stylistic imprint on it. Mm. But uh, it's a very uh, different sort of Hoffman. We've got wonderful singers in it, um, and of course, it's a star vehicle for Jessica Pratt. Mm-hmm. So like Joan Sutherland, uh, Jess will sing all the soprano roles, which is an incredible thing to do in one evening. And so I think there'll be a lot of uh, interest in that. Uh, there's a young tenor, Rivas, South American tenor, who I first heard at La Scala. He's tremendously exciting. And Marco Mimica will sing the four baritone roles. And, of course, um, uh, who, someone who's become a, an audience favourite here now, Andrea Battistoni is conducting, and Andrea is one of the most exciting conductors in the world now. 
um, and he uh, comes back because um, I heard I saw him conducting when he was 22 years of age in Venice, and uh, and I was bowled over. I thought, my God, this fellow is incredibly talented. And then I thought about it. Went back to my hotel. And I thought, oh, maybe the orchestra was making him look good. So <laughs> I went back and saw another show. Just to be sure. Yeah. And uh, it was even better than the last one. Great. So we hired him then. It took a couple of years because already he was being booked up. And uh, he's been coming regularly. And his performances at Otello last year were extraordinary. Mm. Uh, Tosca, he's doing Attila this year, uh, later in the year. Uh, and I know that uh, he was, or when I spoke to him about the Hoffman, he was tremendously excited about that too. And to work with Damiano. So to have two extraordinary talents like that in the creative team makes it um, enormously exciting. Mm. What would you say to someone who, you know, hasn't been to an opera yet, would like to, to go to their first dip, their toe in the water? Mm. Is, is it a Tales of Hoffman type choice, do you think, for them, or is it more like a Labo M, would you recommend? Look, it's a really interesting question. La Boheme, of course, is a wonderful introduction to the opera. But when you have someone as talented as Damiano, uh, for first-time opera-goers, who are usually more impressed by what they see rather than what they hear... Oh, really? Yeah. It's, well, we live in a visual society, and uh, they see something that they've never seen before, and they find it exciting, stimulating. And then, um, subliminally... It's like an earworm, you know, they'll hear a tune from Hoffman and probably the Baccarol or something like that will stick in their mind and they'll find they, they, they can, they're remembering it all week. So even though uh, Bohem is a fantastic introduction, as is La Traviata, you know, I probably wouldn't suggest going to Goethe Demerung as your first introduction to opera. <laughs> but uh, something like this Hoffman, I would. Yeah. It's surprising how many people uh, we're getting that are coming for the first time uh, we just saw some statistics for Carmen on Cockatoo Island the other day. And 25% of the people who've bought have never bought to Opera Australia before. 25%. Which is a huge number. Huge proportion. If any mm. opera company in the world had that sort of, those sort of numbers, they'd be over the moon. Yeah. And I mean, I can imagine when it, if it was something like Phantom of the Opera, for exactly. instance. Uh, but yeah. you, you are talking still about an opera here. Exactly. Yeah. And in a place where never, no one's ever done an opera. Mm. So I think people are open to being stimulated and surprised. I mean, I'm particularly thrilled about the the way this, this year is going because we came out of COVID, which, we, as we know, was um, a shocking time. Last year, the company lost $22 million. This year will be the most successful year in the company's entire history. Wow. We've already taken more than $76 million at the box office and we've got three months to go. That's extraordinary. It is. It's an amazing thing. And, so, and again, you know, any company in the world who was doing that would be astonished yeah and i look i must say i'm particularly thrilled about it because uh, we did take some risks artistically for this year because i knew we had to get out of the hole we were in last year we couldn't have another year like that or it would have been absolutely catastrophic for the company so i'm really thrilled that we'll finish with a surplus this year and, and any company whether you're in the arts or whatever you're doing if you've got uh, more than a $22 million turnaround in a year, you must be doing something right. Well, I think that's definitely an excuse for uh, a couple of glasses of champagne at the next uh, <laughs> premiere. <laughs> but I think we have to have a bit of music now. What have you got for us first? Well, you know, I've, I've uh, chosen a few, few pieces that have always been, well, touchstones for me, I guess. And, you know, when you've um, been to a show or you've had a particularly horrible day and you come home and you think, oh, I'll just play some music. The Wanderers Nachtlied No. 2 by Schubert is a beautiful piece, very simple, but when it's sung by Dietrich Fischer-Disco and the way he sings it, 
It's uh, one of the most beautiful things you'll ever hear. Dietrich Fischer-Disker, the baritone, with pianist Gerald Moore for Schubert's Wanderers Nachtlied Number no. 2. The first choice of my guest in conversation today, Lyndon Terracini, who is, of course, embarking on his final year as Artistic Director of Opera Australia. Lyndon, you ha- obviously have to have an ear for singers. Um, you know, you, you have to bring the best singers to Australia. You have to find the best singers within Australia uh, to perform. Uh, so what is it specifically about Dietrich Fischer-Disker that attracts you to that? Oh, look, I think, um, and I've said this before, but um, I think Fischer Disco was arguably the great, well, one of the greatest, if not the greatest singer of the 20th century. He didn't have the greatest voice, uh, but he used it in such a musical way, and he found a way of singing that was unlike anyone else. And so the way he sings this Wanderers Nachtlied, for example, is unlike anyone else. The way he used to sing the Count in The Marriage of Figaro, the the way he used to use the text, um, again, he didn't have uh, when he was singing in the theatre, and particularly when he was singing in full voice, uh, he didn't have the greatest voice in the world, but it was the way he used it that was always interesting and always surprising. Mm. Um, You know, I could say a similar thing about Hermanella Yaho, what she does, the risks she takes, the way she uses a voice, the way she underlines the text. Fischer-Disco did the same thing, and he was unique in his time um, for being able to do that. You know, when you're coming through a period when you've got enormous voices like, uh, well, Mario Del Monaco and um, Ettore Bastianini and um, Franco Corelli and so on, who who had astonishing vocal instruments and used them to tremendous effect... Uh, Fischer Disco was almost uh, the complete opposite. His musicality was extraordinary. And uh, as I said, the way he would just lean on a particular part of a word so that um, you were constantly listening and being mm. surprised. Mm. I love that. It's just such an interesting observation saying that, you know, he doesn't have the best, he didn't have the best voice in the world, mm. but it's what he does with it which yeah. counts. Yeah. It's, like, it's like playing a, a, a musical instrument. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I've often used the analogy, you know, it's um, with cricket. People can have... A wonderful natural ability, but unless they find um, an outstanding technique to go with that natural ability, then very often they don't make the grade. Mm. And Steve Waugh was a classic example of this. You know, when he first when he got into the Australian team, it was all on natural ability, and uh, the great teams in the world uh, quickly realised that uh, he was susceptible to the hook shot, and he always got out. So he was dropped from the Australian team. 
So he had to go away and work on his technique and they never got him out that way again. He became one of the greatest batsmen in the history of cricket. It's the same with singing. You know, there are plenty of people who have, um, you know, a great natural ability and they may last five years. But unless you've got an extraordinary technique to back that up, then... um, Sadly, um, it's very difficult to, uh, for people to realise their potential. Mm. You've just talked about the highly successful year we've had this year. I'd like to go back to when you joined Opera Australia. What was it like then and what were you wanting and needing to achieve? That was a very difficult time too. Um, I remember my first, the first executive team meeting I went to, I was uh, <laughs> quite shocked and taken aback because the conversation was about how... You'd signed could... the contract before you'd seen the figures, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's absolutely true. Oh, really? I had, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the first, that first meeting was about how the company could transition to being part-time. Uh, and as you can, can imagine, that was a, a pretty big shock. And, uh, <sighs> and I said, uh, I remember saying, well, look, I've just got here, so look, you know, just give me a, a bit of time to try and do something about this because um, once you go part-time, there's, there's no coming back. And so fortunately, the three things that um, I told the board I would do, and I suspect it's probably why they gave me the job, and that was to do something on Sydney Harbour, uh, to do the ring, uh, to do the big musicals, and combined with that, um, to do the popular repertoire, but, but to do it at a very high level. So over the when coming years... When you're talking about popular years, repertoire, you're talking about the Bohems and, yeah, and so on. Like, yeah. So had they, had they kind of fallen by the wayside? Well, the company was doing Bohem and Traviata, but not as many performances. Okay. And I thought that if we could do a lot more performances with um, really some of the best people in the world, then the audiences would come. And uh, as it turned out, that's exactly what we ended up doing. And Opera on Sydney Harbour became a huge success. Uh, We've done The Ring twice and about to do it for the third time. And uh, the company had never done The Ring in its entire, well, at that stage, 60-year history. Mm. And as I said, it's, it's vitally important for any opera company with designs on being a major organisation, you've got to do the ring mm. and you've got to do it well. So that was very important. And my feeling about musicals is the great grand musicals, Rodgers and Hammerstein, the Sondheim musicals, um, and even Andrew Lloyd Webber and so on, you know, I would argue that they're contemporary operas. And uh, when uh, the Barber of Seville, La Traviata, Bohème first premiered, they were incredibly popular operatic events. And, you know, I'll always argue that uh, fundamentally a musical is still uh, a narrative driven by music, Mm. and that's what opera is. It's just that tastes and styles change, and uh, technology changes. You know, when The Marriage of Figaro premiered, there was no electric light, so everything was lit with candles. Uh, And they did some very innovative thing. I've seen images of, you know, what they looked like. But nevertheless, with the lighting uh, technology that we have today, when you see a show... It just transforms the piece. Uh, we're doing Phantom at the Opera at the moment, and uh, the lighting design is astonishing. Then there, there was uh, the use of, uh, of of microphones and sound, and now a sound designer is as important as as a lighting designer, in the same way as we have a set designer. So, in in the world of uh, contemporary opera, uh, and I'm referring to the musicals that I've mentioned, things like My Fair Lady, uh, South Pacific. They're extraordinary pieces, and 
you know, South Pacific premiered in 1949 and it's still being played regularly today mm. to great I was about success. to say, not so contemporary. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, compared to a, a contemporary operas that were written at the same time that have gone and you know, been forgotten after one, one season, um, I would argue that there's a great deal of merit in doing pieces like that. And they will, they will survive and continue to survive into the future. And I think for audiences too, to go back to what I was talking about before about balance in a season... If you're doing something like My Fair Lady, uh, it's a tremendous thing to have in a season if you're doing Otello in the same year. Again, it's, it's all about finding the right balance. I'm not saying we should have wall-to-wall musicals, but nevertheless, uh, they're a very, very important part of the repertoire. But at the same time, you also have to do them extremely well. Mm. Um, you can't just feel that, oh, well, we'll put on a musical and make money. Mm. Do, do you do them a bit more operatically, for want of a better word. Well, I mean... Than, say, if they when, were on the Capitol. Yeah, we're not doing Legally Blonde. No, 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 but so in terms of the way, you, the way you're performing them, like your, your, yeah. your version of My Fair Lady, West Side Story, whatever, is going to be different to the version that that's true. you might see in a different theatre. Yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely true, Simon. I mean, for me, uh, it's vitally important for us to have exceptional singing. Mm. Uh, and again, in this uh, cast of Phantom at the moment... They're fantastic. You know, everyone is really, really wonderful at every preview, every uh, dress rehearsal. They're striving to be better. Uh, after a show, we might have a chat about this could be better or maybe try this and so on. It's fantastic to see people doing that mm. and, and, um, and really wanting to be the best they can be. And that's a fantastic thing. But, yeah, to answer your question, it's vitally important that uh, we have really first-rate singers. Mm. You talked about, you know, chatting the other week, you know, we could do this, we could do that better mm. and so forth. So you've got quite a hands-on involvement with the day-to-day oh, yeah. productions. Oh, absolutely. You're not yeah, just yeah. sitting up in an office. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I mean, in the theatre for all of the, well, particularly all of the stage rehearsals and, uh, and have conversations with singers if they want to. If they don't want to do it, that's fine. Uh, but, um, you know, if I can suggest something and then they try it and it works very well, then, uh, <laughs> then it's surprising um, uh, how many more things they want to ask about. <laughs> I'm sure. And, it's, uh, and look, at that, that's, look, it's particularly satisfying when you, when you see and hear people really fulfilling their potential. It's, yeah. uh, it's fantastic. But, look, I think you have to be involved. You have to be, uh, as I'll often say, riding shotgun on every show uh, because it's not just the first night. It's all those other shows that people are paying a lot of money to come and see. And, um, you know, I know from speaking to, to subscribers, patrons, single-ticket buyers, some of them uh, buy the entire season on their MasterCard and spend the rest of the year paying it off, Gosh. which is an extraordinary commitment. Mm. And so my focus has always been making sure that every show we do is as good as the first one, or ideally a lot better. And if we've got a production in Melbourne and then it's coming to Sydney or vice versa, then it's important for us to keep working so that the following season is better than the last one. And I think people have understood that, uh, and they do. Their expectations are high now. They do expect that every time they come that it's going to be something special. And that's our obligation to the audience too. You mm. know, we need to make sure that every time... Uh, the curtain goes up, the audience that have paid a lot of money to come and see these shows get something extraordinary that they can take with them, ideally for the rest of their lives, but certainly um, for the long term. Mm. With the hand dropper on the harbour, you know, bringing in musicals, etc., did you encounter any resistance? <laughs> or should I say, tell me about the resistance you encountered? <laughs> uh, Simon, well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> when I first said uh, we were going to do it, uh, no one believed it was going to happen. Uh, 
Yeah. And I think people were privately having a chuckle and thinking, oh, well, when this doesn't work, then we'll be rid of him and so you know, we'll get back to normal. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful it, when those things Oh, it's, it's sensational. <laughs> and I remember very clearly uh, a month before we were going to open and uh, I was at a photocopying machine in the, at the Opera Centre and there was a particular person uh, who was at the photocopying machine and I needed uh, her to do something. And I said, OK, look, I need this, this. And then when, when I'm getting closer to performances, I tend to speak a lot faster and get excited and so on. So I was rattling off, like, I need this, 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 and this needs to happen and blah, 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 blah. And she turned to me in a fairly sardonic way and said, yeah, look, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was quite shocked, actually. I remember thinking, because in my mind, there was no doubt. We were on. Yeah. And uh, it was just a peculiar thing, and uh, I thought, oh, well, I'll just have to work harder. So <laughs> Talk faster. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I did. And uh, we had a, a terrible time that year because um, there was so much mud and cranes getting bogged. And, oh. Oh, I mean, it was extraordinary. Everything was against us. And uh, we sort of finished the site 15 minutes before we had to open the gates. Ooh. And so we managed to do that. I think and, of the uh, Olympics when they paint, putting in the back row of chairs on the day of the opening ceremony. Well, it's, it's like that. <laughs> I mean, it was literally like that. And then the day of the first night, I woke up and it was a gorgeous, sunny, beautiful Sydney day and stayed like that for the whole evening. We had a huge success, the audience. Uh, and it was a genuinely uh, spontaneous standing ovation uh, with everyone going bananas. And, uh, yeah, look, that was uh, one of the great nights, but um, particularly considering the amount of adversity that there was uh, from everywhere about doing that. Um, surprisingly, none from uh, Dr Handa, who has been tremendously supportive, uh, even though he's only, he's only ever seen one show there, but he's been a tremendous supporter. He doesn't come each... No, no, no. No, he doesn't. Oh, I seem to be there every night. No, no. And he's, uh, look, He, I, I usually go to Japan and show him a video of it. Uh, and we sit up till about three in the morning watching that. And he has um, tremendous faith and confidence. And I suppose uh, friendship, which is uh, mm. it's a wonderful thing. He's been tremendously loyal. Even through COVID, when um, we couldn't do uh, any of those productions, he still paid his sponsorship. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. You also had a bit of a fight to be able to bring more international artists into mm. you. Can you tell me a bit about that? Oh, well, yeah, look, that was a kind of um, a misnomer that had been put out by a particular agent, that there was a limit of only 10 foreign artists a year. Oh, so that wasn't actually true. And uh, No, but everyone thought it was. Right. And so when I came to the company, they said, oh, no, we can't have any more than 10 foreign artists a year. And I said, oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, they'll stop them at the airport. And I said, really? Oh, OK. And then I thought... Oh, look, I'm going to try this. So I did, and no one stopped anyone at the airport, and you know, there was no issue. It's, and people often ask, well, why do you have foreign artists coming in here when they're Australian singers? The, the repertoire that the audiences really genuinely want to come and see is the big repertoire. And it so happens that that is the repertoire that is extremely difficult to sing. And there aren't many people in the world who can sing, sing it. That's why uh, if you go to the Met in New York... When you see these big, particularly the big Italian operas or the big German operas, there are foreign artists singing. If you go to Covent Garden, it is exactly the same. If you go to the Paris Opera, exactly the same. If you go to Munich, exactly the same. And the reason is there are very few people in the world who can sing these things. If you haven't got a really reliable high C as a tenor, well, you can't do La Boheme. Mm. I mean, you simply can't do it. Mm. 
Um, I mean, these things make a career out of specific roles. Absolutely, don't they? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it goes back to what I was talking to before. Yes, they are extremely gifted naturally, but uh, they've uh, worked on a technique that enables them to be able to sing these things. And for listeners who heard Jonas um, Kaufman singing Lohengrin in Melbourne earlier this year, you know that was um, a masterclass in how to sing. You know, really, when you turn up on any day to sing, you sing with the voice you've got for that day. Mm. Now, if you don't have a, a really sophisticated technique, then you start to panic because uh, you're below par and your natural voice just won't get you through. Uh, with Jonas, every performance was different, uh, the, particularly the Saturday matinee I thought was absolutely unbelievable and I never expect to hear Lohengrin sung like that again in my life. Uh, the other performances were, they were all terrific in their own right, but you know some of them were a bit better than others, some of them not quite as good as others. But the way he managed to sing that and find different ways of doing it every mm. night and still have the audience spellbound was an extraordinary thing. And so, you know, you can't find people who actually have that phenomenal talent to be mm. able to do it. You know, if you're going to sing Siegfried, there are maybe five people in the world who can get from the beginning to the end and still be speaking. <laughs> and um, then do it next next couple of nights. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And someone like Stefan Winker, I mean, it's, it's astonishing the way he can do it. I don't know how anyone can sing just the first act of Siegfried, but he keeps going for six hours. Gosh. And uh, it's it's phenomenal. So you know, if you can't, if you don't have those singers, well, you can't do those operas. You can do operas that are you know interesting interesting to a small number of people, um, but you can't do the big repertoire. And if you can't do the big repertoire, that's when you get into serious financial difficulty. Mm. And also artistically, you know, Andrea Chenier is a wonderful opera. We did it in concert. Uh, a couple of years ago with Jonas Kaufmann and Ludovic Tezier. And incidentally, we're doing um, La Gioconda with Jonas, Ludovic Tezier, uh, and an incredible cast of people with Pinker Steinberg conducting again. But you have to have those people to be able to sing it. Cello Emar, the tenors aria, is one of the most difficult arias in the entire repertoire. Mm. So if you haven't got Jonas Kaufmann to sing it, well, you can't do the opera. No. So it's, it's the reason is... Um, not just because you want to have a foreign singer, it's because you uh, w uh, need to have a balanced repertoire, you need to do the big Italian repertoire, the big German repertoire, as well as other things. And to do that, you've got to have some of the greatest singers in the world. I mean, Caruso famously said, Il Trovatore is not a difficult opera to do as long as you have the four best singers in the world. And it's true, you know, the, the, all those roles are so difficult to sing. Mm. You, you just can't do it and, because there aren't the people who can sing them. Mm. You mentioned Andrea Chenier a moment ago, so I think mm. we need to hear a bit of it. Uh, tell us about the performance we're about to hear. Well, Franco Corelli is one of the greatest tenors, some people would say the greatest tenor uh, who's uh, ever lived, certainly one of the greatest tenors of the 20th and early 21st century. This opera, as I mentioned, Andrea Chenier, I love. It's uh, tremendously passionate and this uh, improviso that... Um, he sings when he first, uh, right, at, right at the very beginning of the opera, sets the tone for the piece. And uh, if it wasn't uh, Franco Corelli singing it, then I would probably choose Jonas Kaufmann to sing it. But it's uh, a fantastic aria, and it really shows Corelli in his prime, singing it as well as anyone has ever sung it. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
Franco Corelli, that uh, amazing performance for Undi Suro Spazio, the improviso from Giordano's Andrea Chenier. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Lyndon Terracini, the Artistic Director of Opera Australia. Lyndon, I found a wonderful quote from a 1998 interview you did in The Weekend Australian, um, which starts by saying you resembled an ageing rock star more than an opera singer. And I have to say, the photo that accompanies the article uh, does not disappoint <laughs> that description. Is that how you like to see yourself when you were, when you were in your opera, your singing career? Look, I, I'm not sure, really. It was, um, I was doing a lot of um, big uh, modern pieces and uh, I found them tremendously stimulating and exciting to do because I was working with um, Louis Andreessen, who was one of the great composers of the 20th, 21st century, and uh, Peter Greenaway was directing the show, uh, and I was, you know, singing those sorts of things uh, all around the world, and, and quite a number of them in Australia too. And I suppose I never really thought about being a rock star, but at that stage I didn't like the idea of a um, a kind of prim and proper opera singer, mm. particularly for the repertoire that I, I was singing and, and that I wanted to sing at that time. And I was living on the north coast of New South Wales, which is called a sort of, you know, hippiedom. Um, and so I guess I was slightly influenced by that. But it was more about being a free spirit. Mm. And, uh, and not only in the way I was living my life, but uh, also musically and theatrically, where I was doing shows that uh, were pretty out there on the edge and working with people that um, were keen to explore those sort of outer limits, uh, not only of the, the repertoire musically, but also theatrically. And uh, it was a very exciting time, and I enjoyed it enormously. So tell me about those formative years. When does the opera bug kick in for you? Well, it's interesting. My first public performance was when I was four years of age. I sang at a Sunday school anniversary for the uh, Salvation Army in uh, North Sydney. It was in Haybury Street, Crow's Nest. And uh, there's a photo I've got when I was a kid, four years of age in short pants, singing Christopher Robin is saying his prayers. By all accounts, it was pretty terrible. But uh, nevertheless, I think, you know, that was sort of my life because growing up in the Salvation Army, I was only ever interested in music. I got to play all the brass instruments. Uh, I'd come home from school and um, just pick up the cornet and play or later the trombone. When I was at the Sydney Congress Hall Band, I used to lead the band on the march with the bass drum. And you have to be very careful about the right tempo. If you choose the wrong tempo, then everyone's tripping over as they're trying to play <laughs> a march um, when they're uh, marching down, um, was it um, Pitt Street, I think we used to march down, or Elizabeth Street, Elizabeth Street. So it gave me a, a great feeling for identifying a tempo. So it was, you would start the march with a yump-bum, yump-bum, bum so that'd be a quite a quick march between 160 and 120 but it gave me a very good feel for being able to identify a tempo and then when I was playing timpani um, in those days the, the timpani were pretty much hand tuned you had pedals but nevertheless you had to hand tune them as well and so uh, it gave me a very good sense of pitch and so without realising it uh, the things I was doing playing in those bands, you know, playing um, adaptations of Tchaikovsky symphonies and things mm. like that. That too was tremendously exciting. I, I loved doing it. Um, and then, you know, playing timpani, leading a march, doing all of that, and then I'd started singing without knowing it was an extraordinary apprenticeship for what I would do later on as a singer. 
and particularly uh, beneficial to the big contemporary pieces that were quite challenging musically that I was doing. But I started um, having singing lessons, I guess, when I was about 17 or maybe slightly younger, but something like that, with a teacher called uh, Lyndon Jones, coincidentally, at the Sydney Conservatorium. And then later with uh, Madame Marianne Marty, who was the doyen of singing teachers in Sydney. But that really started um, when I was at university. I only stayed there for a year. And a friend of mine said, um, oh, do you know the opera's looking for extras? I said, oh, yeah, I was pretty disinterested. And he said, oh, and, we, and you get paid. <laughs> and Goodness so me. I, was, I was immediately interested. So we went to a rehearsal and it was out at the showground, I think, in one of those huge um, pavilions. And it was a, a rehearsal of Otello. And there was an Italian tenor, Umberto Borso, singing, and John Shaw was singing Iago. And um, they were letting rip in the first act. And I thought, my God, this is sensational. This is just great. So anyway, uh, we got a job being an extra. And it wasn't in Otello, actually. It turned out to be Turandot. But that's and just a non-singing part, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. just holding a spear. Yeah. And, uh, and I, in Turandot, I was standing up the back there with Graham Murphy. And uh, when, I, when I finished my duty as whatever I was doing as an extra, I used to go around into the wings and stand there and listen to Donald Smith, the late Donald Smith, sing um, Nessun Dorma long before it was a pop song. And um, I thought he was fantastic. It was just extraordinary. And I'd started to have a, f- have a few singing lessons uh, with Madame Marty, and she said to me one day, oh, you should think about being a singer. And I, th- I thought that was the most preposterous idea I'd ever heard of. Apart from you know being this extra and hearing Donald Smith, I'd never met a, an opera singer. I didn't believe that you could actually earn a living doing that. So anyway, I went into the city of city of Stedford and uh, won a number of prizes. And it wasn't because I was any good. It was because everyone else was so <laughs> literally <laughs> dreadful. I mean, there was another fellow, Graham McFarlane, who's had a long career with Opera Australia. And uh, he was in it, so he, he, he and I shared first prize in a number of these singing competitions. But again, everyone, everyone else was so dreadful. There was, they had to give us a prize. <laughs> so then um, various people asked me to sing in uh, operas they were doing around Sydney at the time because there were quite a few, a few companies. There was the Young Opera Company, University of New South Wales Company, Rockdale Opera, which is still going, mm. University of Sydney Opera, uh, I think there was one on the North Shore. So, you know, you could kind of um, earn a little bit of money just uh, singing for these groups. And at that time, too, um, and I can't remember how this happened, but I ended up um, being a session singer. And session singers, I don't ex- think, exist anymore. So I was doing all the backings for TV commercials. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was at the opera school at that stage in 1973, and it was the year that the Sydney Opera House opened. And uh, Harry and Miller used to have, in conjunction with Channel 9, every Sunday night a big, um, a big special, Sunday night at the Sydney Opera House. And so people like Olivia Newton-John, uh, Rolf Harris, uh, Helen Reddy, Des O'Connor, they would all come and do a big show. And so I would do the backings for them. And um, Claire Poole used to have the Claire Poole Singers, and so she hired me to do all of these things. And so... It was a lot of fun, actually. You'd come in in the morning and just side-read the stuff, have a rehearsal and do it that night. And um, there was one particular night I remember... Well, well, I was also... When I was doing On the Ohio for Olivia Newton-John, I remembered the other day with her sad passing. 
But uh, one of the very, there were two other very funny incidents. It was Rolf Harris who taught me to play the didgeridoo, and I ended up doing a duet with Rolf Harris. Um, It was the very first variety concert in the concert hall of the Sydney Opera House. And so I did this duet with Rolf Harris that was a particularly dreadful song, um, inventively titled Come to the Sydney Opera House. And then when I was uh, backing Helen Reddy, uh, her then husband and manager, I took a side and I said, look, um, I'm not sure that um, I should actually sing full voice uh, as a backing singer singer in this, or if I'm going to, then I suggest you speak to the sound technician and get him to turn me down. He said, well, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I can't come out and sing, I am woman. (laughs) (laughs) That was the only time I saw him smile, actually. There was this sort of wry uh, smile at the corner of his mouth, and uh, he said, hmm. Possibly not. <laughs> <laughs> but though, look, that, that was great fun. And uh, so I, I did that. And then in 1974, uh, Justin McDonnell, who was running the new opera company in South Australia, heard me singing in Albert Herring for Young Opera in Sydney. So he offered me a contract. And uh, it was a contract for a year, which well, was an extraordinary thing. So that entailed um, touring in the Northern Territory. We did... Um, the Seven Deadly Sins, and it was um, Robin Archer's debut. And so Robin Archer and I opened the Space Theatre at the Adelaide Festival Centre with uh, The Seven Deadly Sins, and we toured that through the Northern Territory in Darwin, Catherine, Tennant Creek, Alice Springs. I have no idea what they made of that show. (laughs) But um, it was fun, and we did it, and Robin and I have stayed friends ever since. Um, And then John Winter, who was the... I think he was called the general manager at the, the Australian Opera in those days, came and saw the Seven Deadly Sins, and it was a double bill. I was doing the telephone by Minotti as well with um, Gay McFarlane. And uh, so John Winter saw that and then asked me if I'd like to be a young artist with Opera Australia. So that's when the connection with Opera Australia really started, or it was called the Australian Opera yeah. in those days. Um, so that that the kind of operatic journey was almost by accident, really, um, and I stayed with uh, the Australian Opera then for a few years, and then I thought, oh, look, if I'm going to do this and have a career, then I'd better learn how to do it. So um, I went in. Um, I'd been there for five years. I was in my fifth year, seeing um, those Juve lead parts, you know, Strephon and Iolanthe and <laughs> all that sort of thing, Guglielmo in Cosi Fan Tutte and all of that. Um, so I went in one day and look, said, look, I've got to leave and um, I'm just going to Italy and uh, that's it. So I did and uh, found a teacher. Well, the first teacher I was and said, oh, look, I learned some interesting things. Uh, he was the former head of music at the San Carlo in Naples and his father, Pasquariello, uh, was the singer that Tosti wrote all those songs for mm. that uh, you see on here, Pavarotti and all the famous Italian singers singing. So he was an interesting character and I learned a bit from him. Then I found another teacher Fernando Bandera in Milano, and um, basically uh, I went and had singing lessons three times a week for two years. And that's when I really learnt uh, what the business of singing was about, and that allowed me then to have a career. And if I hadn't have done that, I certainly wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Mm. Well, some more music now, and uh, well, this is a voice that uh, you're particularly fond of and is a is popular with Opera Australia, should I say. <laughs> Oh, look, Jonas Kaufmann is um, certainly the most famous tenor and the greatest tenor alive and probably the greatest opera singer alive and the most famous opera singer alive. But Jonas, um, you know, Jonas has become a terrific friend uh, and I appreciate enormously, you know, the way 
uh, when he if he says yes, I'll come, he'll come, and um, there's never a hint of him cancelling or anything like that. Mm. You know, he's he enormous. doesn't get a better offer, as yeah. it were. Well, he, he's uh, he's fantastically loyal in that way because mm. um, you know people throw you know ridiculous amounts of money at him, and uh, but if he says he's doing it, then he does it. As does Renato Palumbo, and uh, when um, Palumbo was um, coming here to conduct Rigoletto, I think. And uh, he got a call from La Scala to say, uh, look, uh, we'd like you to do uh, Macbeth. And he said, oh, yeah, when? And they t- gave him the period. And he said, oh, no, no, I can't do that. I've told Lyndon I'll do Rigoletto in Australia. And they said, yeah, yeah, but look, you know, it, this is La Scala. It's not Australia. And he said, no, 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 look, I, I told him I was doing it, so I'm doing it. And he just put the phone down. Now, I didn't hear that from him. I heard it from uh, the people uh, who were making the phone calls. And Jonas is similar in that way. And uh, I think that... Um, those qualities in a human being come through in uh, the way they perform as artists. And uh, as anyone who heard uh, Jonas sing Lohengrin, as I said before, in um, Melbourne this year, it's, um, that's one of the great experiences that you'll ever have in your life in terms of uh, going to the opera. So for him to sing um, here uh, in Fernam Land from Lohengrin, it's, um, it's something very special. Wonderful Jonas Kaufmann in Phantom Land from Wagner's Lohengrin. We also had the Marla Chamber Orchestra conducted by Claudio Abado in that performance. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Opera Australia Artistic Director Lyndon Terracini. Lyndon, going to Italy, your ancestral home, I called it in the introduction, mm. did, did it feel like coming home? Because you, you hadn't actually been there as a child, had you? No, I hadn't. Uh, I went there first in 1976 when Hans von Ahenza invited me. I'd done a big piece at the Adelaide Festival, El Cimarron, which is fundamentally a one-person opera that mm. goes for about an hour and a half. 
and there are three instrumentalists. And so it's a big evening. And uh, I did that, and I had, a, fortunately, a really big success. So, um, and the composer came to Australia and directed the production. So he invited me to go to Italy to a festival in Montepulciano that he'd begun and to sing Sancho Panza in um, Don Quixote, an opera by Paisiello that he had kind of rearranged for orchestra and town band. And, um, you know, I got there and I, I couldn't speak any Italian at that stage. And, but I was just in love. Well, so you with weren't the place. that an Italian, that that much Italian as no, a no, child. No, no, <laughs> no. It was just the surname. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I loved it, and uh, the whole experience was fantastic. So um, I went back next year to mm. work with a teacher, and the year after, and then I decided I'd leave, and go and do it. But um, I did feel tremendously at home. I have to say, um, you know, when you're walking along a street and you wonder if you're great-grandfather walked along that street as a boy or mm. you know and um, various moments that uh, were almost like deja vu so I felt tremendously comfortable being there and as a result of that I learned the language very quickly uh, even the dialect in uh, Como which is a peculiar dialect to say <laughs> the least and kind of amusing in all sorts of ways because I, I actually wanted to be uh, completely absorbed into that culture and I also felt uh, a couple of other things. You know, you can't go through your life with a surname like mine and not speak Italian. <laughs> and secondly, it's kind of idiotic to be singing an opera and not understand the text or not be able to speak the text. Not really understand it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, people have a, uh, an idea of what it means, but you can't use the text in the way, well, as I said, in the same in the way someone like Fischer-Disco does unless you really speak the language and have a profound understanding mm. of it. One of the reasons why uh, Jonas Kaufmann sings Italian opera so well is that he speaks very good Italian. And, uh, you know, Jonas and I might uh, speak uh, in Italian or English or German sometimes. If you've got that kind of understanding, you can perform it at, at a totally different level. Mm. So I wanted to have that. I wanted to feel that I had that um, fluency and flexibility to be able to use the language that I was singing in. You mentioned, you know, Jonas Kaufman, you know, rejecting an offer from La Scala because mm. he was already booked. Well, that, that was Renato Palumbo. Oh, I beg your pardon. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Oh, sorry. But, but Jonas rejected other things. Yeah. Yes. So, but, um, you know, we, we hear about, you know, La Scala, mm. the Met in New York you've mm. mentioned as well. What are we still needing to learn from those, quote unquote, great opera companies? Or is it all just reputation? And oh, no. Else? Look, well, I think in the last um, few years, the uh, standard of performance at Opera Australia has been... Yeah, certainly, as good as you'll see in other major international opera houses. I think the most important thing we have to learn is that opera is an international form and you can't be parochial about it. You can't be, um, um, well, how can I say it, desperately thinking that, um, well, there's, uh, we have to use someone who's Australian, which is fine. You have to use, uh, what's the next step? You have to use someone who's, who's from Sydney. And the next step is, well, no, you have to use someone who's from Newtown. Or the next step is, well, you have to use someone from King Street. <laughs> Where does it end? Mm. From my perspective, it should all be based on talent and having the greatest artists uh, convey to you uh, the, 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 the absolute fundamentals of a great work of art is one of the great experiences in life. And if things are performed at a low level, then you can't get that. When you've got Jonas Kaufmann singing Lohengrin, it's an extraordinary experience. And the experience won't be the same if someone who's singing is battling to get the notes. Mm. 
So uh, as far as I'm concerned, it, it needs to be all-encompassing. That doesn't mean to say that I don't think the development of Australian artists is important. It's incredibly important. And over the last um, 10 years or so, we've developed far more Australian artists than at any other time in the company's history. Mm. And some of them are now having fantastic international success, which I'm thrilled about. And I support them enormously by finding them agents, you know, introducing them to people, writing references, doing everything I possibly can for the people that have worked incredibly hard and, and are doing tremendously well. But, you know, the bottom line is uh, it's, it's not a form that thrives if it's provincial. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dame Joan Sutherland is, has long since departed us. Mm. Who is, do you think, who are our very top opera singers who are performing internationally? Making oh, waves in Europe and America. Yeah, look, there are quite a few of them. Um, Nicole Carr is obviously doing very well. Stacey Alarm, anyone who mm. saw Stacey do Violetta this year will know that she's one of the best Violettas you'll see anywhere in the world. It's taken. It's been a long journey for her. It's been a 12-year uh, journey where she's worked incredibly hard. She uses her, her natural gifts tremendously well and uh, she's extremely talented. Natalie Arroyan, you know, the, the repertoire she's singing now, things like Attila, uh, you know they're incredibly difficult things to sing, mm. and uh, and she can do it, and so she's having success internationally. Diego Torre, who is Mexican Australian, uh, is a wonderful tenor and had great success in La Juive, and he's really uh, finding um, the area of the repertoire that he does tremendously well as well. Uh, Anna Louise Cole is singing uh, Siglinda and then later Brunhilde this year, uh, and I think she'll do extremely well internationally. Dan Samagi is singing Votan in uh, in the ring later this year and for him it's been a, a long time coming but Dan is now singing tremendously well. So there are a number of people that um, are having success now but you know it's not an overnight thing. It's uh, It takes absolute commitment and it takes a number of years to be able to do it which is why you know I often think and I've said it, um, a young artist program for two years doesn't do anyone any favours. Mm. It's after two years, people may just be starting to understand what it's about. And then, if that all finishes, then uh, no one has, um, mm. has benefited from it. So, you know, we've, we've had people that we've been developing in the company for 10 years, and, uh, and it's now working out tremendously well for them. And I'm, I'm very pleased about that. Mm. So why the move into arts management? Well, again, that kind of happened by accident. I was um, singing all over the place, and uh, but I did, I did make a conscious decision that I wanted to do something else, and and I remember the night it happened absolutely as though it was yesterday. It was the last night when I was singing Rosa, a horse drama, uh, by Louis Andriessen, directed by Peter Greenaway, uh, with the Netherlands Opera, in the Musique Theatre in Amsterdam. Uh, for people who've been there, it's um, it's a very very large theatre, huge theatre. Difficult acoustic and all the rest of it's got um, one of the biggest stages in the world, that and the Bastille. It's uh, the show we were doing there, we were supposed to do, the, do it at the Met, but it was too big for the Met. I was taking the curtain call and you know, it was a big standing ovation and I looked around and I thought, I think I'm done with this, I don't need to do this anymore. And I'd uh, founded a company in Lismore called NORPA, Northern Rivers Performing Arts, and I was working with a lot of kids uh, that um, you know were fairly quite feral, uh, <laughs> but uh, they were a lot of fun. And I'd written some shows for them, Cars That Ate Paris, that toured, and uh, a few others. And I was interested in that. And then I got a call one day from a bureaucrat in the Queensland government, asking me if I'd like to 
be considered for the Queensland Biennial Festival of Music. Mm. And I said, uh, well, I've never heard of it, but uh, I'm sure it's a wonderful thing. So I This wasn't the first festival, was it? <laughs> <laughs> it was. Oh, so right. Okay. It was. So they invited me up there to have a chat to them. So we had this chat and um, they offered me the job. And um, I enjoyed it and we were doing productions all over the state. And um, for those listeners who aren't aware of how vast Queensland is, we were doing shows in uh, Brisbane and Mount Isa at the same time. And it's further from Brisbane to Mount Isa than it is from Brisbane to Adelaide. Right. It's about the same as London to Moscow. And um, we had these shows all over that state. And uh, so I had two mobile phones that I used to sleep with because we had setups at different times all through the night. And so, you know, a technical manager would call me from Barcaldon and then someone would call me from Winton and someone else from Mount Isa and so on. But we did these shows and they, you know, worked out to be very successful. So then they asked me to run the Brisbane Festival and then the River Festival. And so there was this peculiar period where I was running all of them. And I literally ran out of time to sing. And it wasn't that I made a conscious decision that I was stopping at that particular point, but I just didn't have time. And I remember I was rehearsing a show called Love in the Age of Therapy by uh, Paul Grabowski. And I was having to get up at 7 o'clock in the morning to learn that and do some practice and then go into the office and then have a show at night. So, you know, it was becoming ridiculous. And so in the end I just had to say, well, look, you know, I don't have time to do these shows anymore. And so I did make a conscious decision that I was running festivals and I I needed to do that properly, you know. Mm. I couldn't afford to um, spend so much time singing. So um, I I said no to a number number of productions. But, I mean, the world is bizarre. Um, As recent as six months ago, people were still ringing me, asking me to do shows. And I said, you must be mad. (laughs) Well, you have all this free time after you (laughs) step down as being artistic director of OA. (laughs) maybe. We'll see. We'll see what comes up. I know, um, (laughs) But you never know. Yeah, indeed. Well, another piece of music now, and we're back to Andrea Chenier. Mm. Why is this one? Well, this is Ettore Bastianini, and um, maybe the greatest baritone, uh, certainly from a vocal uh, point of view, that's ever lived. He had this gorgeous um, chocolatey sound that was just rich and resonant and fantastic. Uh, he was originally a bass, and um, then he uh, transferred to being a baritone. And in one of those golden periods of opera when um, Delmonico and Corelli and and Tabaldi and Carlos were singing, he was the great baritone. And uh, when I first heard him sing, I couldn't believe the sound that he was making. And um, listeners will get a pretty good indication about the sort of voice that he had um, from this wonderful recording.
Etre Bastianini, the baritone, with Namico della Patria from Giordano's Andrea Chenier, the choice of Lyndon Terracini, Opera Australia Artistic Director. He's my guest in conversation today. Well, Lyndon, I'm sure there'll be copious handover notes to your successor in due course, but if you have a single piece of advice for the person to come after you in this role, what would it be? It's a very good question. You know, everyone wants to come in and talk to everyone, and I think that's a, a very good thing. But it's uh, in the end, you have to trust your own instinct. And, um, and I've mentioned this a number of times. It needs to be, that instinct needs to be based on experience. Uh, but in the end, you've got to trust your artistic uh, gut feeling and go for it. And, um, and I would suggest that the next person um, should just think about not taking any prisoners. If you believe in something and you believe in particular parts of the repertoire, if you fervently are convinced that um, uh, what you're doing is the right thing, then you should do it with everything you've got. Uh, the next person will have advice from countless people and um, everyone will tell you that you should be doing Peter Grimes or uh, From the House of the Dead by Janáček. And uh, they're wonderful pieces and I love them. But you need to have a very circumspect helicopter view of uh, what you're actually putting in a season and what um, subscribers, patrons and, uh, and first-timers really want to see. Often people will tell you uh, that they want to see a particular part of the repertoire because they want to impress you with their sophistication. And I remember I went out and consulted with people when I first came and everyone said, oh, no, we want to see Peter Grimes. That's, that's the sort of repertoire that you should be doing. That's what we want to see. I thought, oh, OK, well, OK. And we happened to be doing South Pacific in the same season. And, um, you know, we, we know who everyone is who buys a ticket. We know where they live. We know, so for all your listeners out there, we've got your address. Um, <laughs> and people were worried about Mark Zuckerberg tracking their phones. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so all the people who said they wanted to see Peter Grimes bought for South Pacific. And we lost half a million dollars on Peter Grimes. Well, and we made a fortune on South Pacific. So you, mm. you can't always believe what people tell you. Right. Well, Lyndon, it's been absolutely spectacular to talk to you today. Uh, but before I let you go, you do have one final piece of music to introduce, and this is off-piste compared to some of the other choices, and I absolutely love it. Why have you chosen this last one, and what is it? Well, I think this should be um, the raison d'etre for every artist. Uh, I think it should be something that um, we all aspire to having, and that is imagination. And often uh, in Europe, when I would be singing around the place and I'd come back to my house in Italy and uh, often get back quite late at night. And so I used to go downstairs to the Soggiorno, the living room, 
and just put on uh, this recording of John Lennon performing Imagine. Well, Lyndon Terracini, thank you so much for taking the time today. Pleasure, Simon. Lyndon Terracini, Artistic Director of Opera Australia. In the 2014 Queen's Birthday Honours List, Lyndon was made a member of the Order of Australia for his services to the performing arts as an opera performer, director and administrator. Subsequently, in 2018, he was appointed Commander of the Order of the Star of Italy, one of the highest civilian honours that country can bestow. Lyndon's final season as Artistic Director of Opera Australia has just been launched. Visit opera.org.au to find out all the details and to book your tickets for 2023. Well, that's all for today. Search 2MBS In Conversation in your preferred podcast app so you can subscribe and listen to the program at a time most convenient to you. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Here's that magical final choice from Lyndon, the immortal John Lennon with Imagine. Imagine no possession. I wonder if you can No need for greed or hunger A brotherhood of man Imagine all the people But I'm not